We are back in the book of Acts this morning. Uh, we took a week to, to be in the Gospel of John as we were looking at the birth of Christ, and then we spent a week at the Shanahan's being a house church for one week. Uh, now that that is over, go ahead and grab your Bibles, grab someone's Bible, open it up to the book of Acts. Uh, it's in the New Testament. If you are young or new to this, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then Acts. Uh, that's in the New Testament, and that'll find you where we need to be. Chapter 9 today in the book of Acts. Uh, let me catch you up a little bit since it's been a while. At the end of chapter 8, we saw God send Philip to an Ethiopian eunuch. And the Ethiopian was, was reading in his chariot. He was reading from the book of Isaiah, and he was confused and didn't know what it was talking about or who it was talking about. And Philip, Philip sits down and explains to him this text, and he explains to him the gospel of who Christ is. Um, and, and he shares the good news that salvation is through Jesus Christ alone. And the eunuch believes um, and then he is baptized, marking his place in the covenant. And then afterwards, uh, the eunuch goes south to Ethiopia on his way, and Philip turns north and goes up the coast towards Caesarea, uh, preaching along the way. And so then our, our passage today seems a little strange because it jumps out of that. It's kind of like in a, in a movie where um, one storyline kind of stops for a bit, and another storyline picks up and, and moves on. It's kind of like, uh, uh, you know, meanwhile, back on Jakku, Ray is rescuing a droid. I didn't ruin anything in case you're wondering. And that also marks the first time I've ever mentioned Star Wars in a sermon, which I think makes me a pastoral cliche at this point. Uh, but that may be the last one ever. So anyway, uh, what we see here then in, in, is we see Luke, not Skywalker, but Luke, the author of, of Acts. That's two. Boy, they just roll out at that point, don't they? Um, Luke, author of Acts, switches this focus then uh, to what God is doing in the life of, of Saul. And so that's kind of the, uh, the, the, what comes into view here. So remember, though, remember, this is the same Saul who we saw in chapter 7, um, where he's washing people's clothes so that they don't get them dirty while they're, they're stoning Stephen to death. Um, it's the same Saul who we're told approved of that death, meaning he was in favor of it. Uh, and so we're going we're gonna to read this, and we're going to look at it in three sections. And the first section is going to be just verses 1 through 9, and then we'll do 10 through 19 when we get to that. We'll divide that in two, in case you're wondering about my numbering there. Uh, so follow along as I read, starting in Acts 9, verse 1, from my giant Bible. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, and he asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Paul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by, by the hand, and they brought him to Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. The grass withers and the flower fades. Let's pray. Lord, what a joy it is to begin this new year alive and gathered with your people to worship you, to hear from your word. Help us to see not just an ancient story in this text, but also the, the power that you have over the hearts of all people whom you have created. 
encourage our, our confidence to proclaim the good news of the gospel and to make us to obey your word, even when we find ourselves in great fear like we see Ananias in our text today. Help us now to put away so many worries and mental distractions so that we may be present here in this moment. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, in the light of the world, we pray. Amen. So this is actually the first of three times in the book of Acts that we hear about the conversion of Paul. Um, the man who is also known as, uh, I said Paul, didn't I? Saul, the man also known as Paul, uh, which is just his Greek name. A lot of times we think that's some conversion given a new name thing. He had a Hebrew name and he had a Greek name and Paul was his, his Greek name. So Paul's coming to faith in Jesus, though, is, is not a typical conversion in the way that we, we see this. In fact, uh, how many of you came to faith um, because you were traveling and a giant bright light surrounded you and, and God spoke to you? Okay, none of you. I was a little worried that when I asked that, I was going to find out I'm the only one who that was not their experience, um, but, but that worked out the way I hoped it would. Uh, none of you. Uh, but anyway, the specifics here are very unique, uh, and they're very necessary for Paul because he's being called not just to faith in Christ, but he's being called to the unique position as an apostle of Christ. And so it's necessary that he actually knows Christ face-to-face -face in this way. Uh, and so let's look at the, the situation in this text here and really try to understand what's happening here. Paul clearly hated Christians. That's very clear here. Uh, he's going way out of his way to go and pursue them. It's not like they walk by in front of him and he does something, but he's, he's made it kind of his life's endeavor to go get them, to stop them. In fact, he is traveling 175 miles to the northeast, which I guess would be to the left. No, yes, on a map. Uh, 175 miles northeast of Jerusalem just to hunt down these followers of Christ. I think we, we see this and we read this, and, it, and it's easy enough just to think, okay, so he hates Christians. Um, but have you ever stopped to just wonder why? I mean, why does he hate Christians? What did Christians ever do to him? You know, what's the weird backstory? Um, truth is, he's, he's just a devout Jew. Uh, he's zealous. That Jewish faith means a lot to him. And his faith is so strong in it that he wants to, uh, to, to, to keep it alive, to keep it from being harmed. And he sees Christianity as a threat to that. You, you might even call him radicalized in that that he believes that the solution to preserving his Jewish faith, uh, <clears throat> which is dear to him, is to hunt down and punish and even kill those who follow Christ. If we can destroy what people are converting to, then maybe we can put an end to this, is kind of the idea. Uh, later in Acts 26, uh, verse 10, speaking of his past, Paul even confesses that he voted for Christians to be put to death at different points. So somewhere before this moment, not only in Stephen, but... He actually had a vote that determined what happened to someone, and he voted in favor of them being put to death. Uh, what a change then. We're going to see in this man whose faith in Christ will later make him willing to be put to death himself uh, for the sake of spreading the good news that salvation comes through Jesus Christ alone. Just a huge 180 we're going to see in his life. And uh, Paul here refers to the Christians as, as the way. Do you notice that? Uh, that sounds kind of cultish, doesn't it? Members of the way. Uh, up to this point in Acts they have not been referred to as Christians even once. The name hasn't shown up. No one's done this yet. Uh, and this term, the way, this is a reference to Jesus Christ himself. You, you might remember in John 14, 6, when Jesus is speaking, he's, he's speaking to Thomas, and he says, I am, you remember this, the way. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the way. And so it's perfectly appropriate to refer to those who are followers of Christ as 
the way. Uh, so then as Paul has a plan to go and gather up these Christians or these members of the way, and he is traveling on the road to do so, um, it's daytime. We don't see that in our text. Later in one of the other portions, it explains that it is daytime. It is near noon. Uh, Acts 26 is where we learn that. And, and then suddenly this light from heaven just shines around him. The fact that it's noonday is intriguing because I don't know that I would notice a light shining around me at noon, but a light brighter than the sun in the sky shines around him. Doesn't that explain our Savior beautifully? Even at the brightest time of day that Jesus shines brighter? And Paul, of course, responds like anyone would, right? Falls on the ground. Um... Because that's what you do when you encounter the risen God. You, you fall on the ground. I, I imagine what he felt was just that absolute debilitating fear. Um, and as if the light wasn't enough, now Jesus then, then speaks to him, saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Jesus says his name twice. He's not stuttering. Rather, he's repeating a name that... Uh, in a way that signifies this intimate, personal interaction. There's an intensity, an emotion that's really meant to get the, uh, the one who's being addressed to get their attention. I mean, this is one of those things you don't realize. That you ever see those references on the side of your Bible? And they point back to similar stories like that. Um, there are a few other examples in Scripture on this. In Genesis 22:11, an angel of the Lord addresses Abraham by repeating his name, Abraham, Abraham. And God spoke to Jacob in a dream, and he addressed him as Jacob, Jacob. In the book of Exodus, God called out of a burning bush saying, Moses, Moses, there's about to be a really important exchange happening here. When God calls out to Samuel, you remember in the vision, and um, when he's laying there at night, and, and he does so saying, Samuel, Samuel. And when Jesus marries, or visits Mary and Martha, and, and Martha's going about doing all this busy work and trying to get things in order, Jesus addresses her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. Uh, finally, Jesus in Luke twenty-two thirty-one speaks to Simon Peter regarding telling him, you know, you're going to fall away and this rooster's going to crow three times, but then we're going to restore you, or I'm going to restore you. And when he addresses him, he does so by repeating his name in the same fashion. Simon, Simon. There's an intimacy here. Um, such an address only really further proves what we know to be true, that Jesus has loved us when we were yet his enemies. There's no doubt that Paul at this moment uh, is an enemy of, of Christ, that Jesus sees him even as an enemy. Uh, think about the rest of that question. Saul, saw, why are you persecuting me? Uh, we read that and we might think, or we might want to think, he's not persecuting Jesus. It's not Jesus he wants to drag into Jerusalem. It's not Jesus he wants to see put to death. It's not Jesus, but he's persecuting Christians, just those who follow Jesus. But Christ makes absolutely clear here is that to what he makes clear is that to persecute the disciples of Jesus is the same as persecuting Jesus himself. And that fits perfectly with what Jesus said in Matthew 25:40 where he says, "Truly I, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of my brothers, you did it to me. This is a very important thing that we understand this, uh, especially in our current culture, because you see, you cannot claim to love Jesus and hate his church. You just can't. You not, cannot claim that we, we want Jesus, but we don't want his bride, who is the church. We, 
We're all branches of the same vine, and Jesus loves each branch dearly. I mean, that's, that's what we're learning here, that, that Paul hating the disciples of Jesus is really the same as Paul hating Jesus. It's a scary thought when we consider how we felt and, and treated other disciples of Christ, true disciples of Christ. It's a scary thought for many who profess some sort of Christian in isolation idea today. And so how is Paul going to answer this question? You ever think how you'd answer that? Why are you persecuting me? Uh, what Paul says in, in verse 5 then is, is simply, Who are you, Lord? You notice anything odd about that? Um, it's like Paul knows the answer to the questions he's asking, right? It's like he already knows it's God. Uh, you know, why are you asking this question? You seem to know the answer. I, and I, I guess it makes sense because I don't, I don't care where I am on the planet, the world, what the situation is. Um, but if someone outshines the sun and, and then speaks from seeming nowhere, my assumption is it's God. Every time. Every time. I'm assuming it's God. It's, it's, there aren't even other options. I can't think of anything. It might be, it's God. I mean, what else are you going to come up with? And, and so there is that sense that he knows in that moment already, God is speaking to me. There is something going on here. And Jesus then answers Paul by, by giving him his name, right? I am Jesus. <clears throat> now think about this moment. Don't pass through this too quick. Think about for Paul. Paul is there collecting Christians to go have them put in jail, to have them put to death. And, and suddenly, all because these people are following a man named Jesus, right? And so in this moment, the, the neurons in, in Paul's brain start going off. You know, just firing off immediately. It can't be Jesus. He's dead. But the resurrection was fake. How, how could the chief priests be wrong? Oh, wow, this, this means that I'm wrong. I've been fighting God. It's kind of that woe is me moment. You know, you and I know the whole story. We know how this turns out. Uh, but don't lose sight that Paul did not know the whole story. He didn't know how this would turn out. You know, in this moment, this could have gone very, very different apart from the grace of God. I mean, just imagine that fear that just clinched around his heart in this moment. I, I can imagine just that, that tensing up and, and waiting for the wrath of God to be poured out on him. And God would have been right. He would have been justified in doing just that. I mean, who, who would fault him for that? But that's not what happens. You know, Paul had a plan to go and to gather up these Christians. And, uh, and, and against his desire, against his own will, Jesus steps in and Jesus changes his plans. See, in the next few verses, Jesus tells him, you're still going to Damascus, but now, rather than going to persecute me, you're going to be proclaiming my gospel. You'll, you'll no longer be my enemy, but you'll be my brother. What an odd change of plans. I, I love how quickly Paul disobeys what Jesus tells him. I mean, I guess in that moment you'd do anything, right? To quack like a duck, absolutely. Um, Paul rises from the ground, and he's blind at this moment, and he's led into the city by these men who are with him. Uh, men that, according to all three of the descriptions, you really start to see uh, that they hear something, but they don't understand the words uh, kind of picture it like Charlie Brown, you know, the adults in that, the teacher and the parents, some kind of wah, 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 wah. Never thought I'd make that noise in a sermon, um, but I just did. Uh, but that kind of that sound, so they, they hear something, they recognize it as a voice speaking 
They don't understand what's being said, though. And I found it interesting here that, that Jesus, who was three days in the grave, then leaves Paul blind for three days. Um, you know, there's not much explained there, but just the, the idea that for three days he sits and he waits and he was able to think about what is going on. Everything I thought was important is not, and everything I thought was needing to be destroyed now becomes the priority in his life. Uh, and so the scene changes again, and it focuses then on a, on a man named Ananias. Uh, so grab your Bible. Let's, let's read verses 10 to 16, and then we'll look at those a little closer, okay? Uh, 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For, <clears throat> for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So this is not the guy who, who died for lying to God. We know that. Uh, you can deduce that by the fact that he's alive at this point. Uh, simple deduction there. Uh, we don't know a whole lot about Ananias here. We don't know how he became a Christian. I love that we don't know it. All we know is that somehow the message got from Jerusalem to 175 miles away, um, and he has believed the gospel. And it's wonderful because not every conversion is recorded. We tend to see him in the scripture like Paul and think every conversion must be this amazing, huge thing. And yet here is Ananias being used of the Lord, and we know nothing of his conversion. Uh, Jesus calls his name, and he responds to him, Here I am, Lord. Uh, he calls Jesus his Lord. We, we tend to lose sight of what that term means. We almost think of it like a, a nickname or some other word that we refer to Jesus as. Uh, it's not. It's a title. Uh, it's just a way of saying, uh, Jesus, I follow you. I am your servant. You are my master. Uh, and that's what Ananias means here when he says, here I am. He's, he, he's ready to hear what he has to do next. It's this sense of here I am, you know, send me. What do you want me to do? And Jesus tells him, go to a street called Straight, where he will find Paul uh, in a house. And, and, and this street called Straight actually still exists in, in Damascus. I looked up pictures of it. It's pretty. Uh, of course, like everything today, we've turned into a marketplace to sell things, but it exists still. Uh, we learn that Paul, in this moment, uh, with his questions and, and fears, is, is praying to God. And so he's communicating with Jesus. Uh, did you notice how quickly Ananias then raises these questions regarding Jesus' plan? You know, this, here I am, send me, whoa, did you say Saul? You've got to be kidding me. I, I think we lose sight of this, you know, because like, Ananias has heard who he was. It, it's like he had heard something like this. What he really hears Jesus saying is something like, there is this hungry lion roaming about eating people uh, right now, and he's in a house across town, and I'd like you to go in that house and comfort the lion, okay? That's what I want you to do. So you can imagine why he so quickly has these second thoughts about what Jesus wants him to do. It's, it's, it's the kind of thing he doesn't really want to do this. It's not, it's not a job I want. It's, it's like the gift of singleness, you know? 
We all know it's a great thing from God. It's something God gives, but we kind of hope he gives it, this gift to someone else. It's nothing we want for ourselves, typically. Um, Ananias, then, is, is trying to reason with, with Jesus. As if, you know, maybe Jesus, you don't fully understand the situation here. Um, and he lists off these evil things that, that, that Saul has been doing. And he reminds Jesus, you know, Saul is here to, to come destroy us. I don't, I mean, do you realize that? I think it's hard for us to imagine, but it'd be like telling a Jewish woman in 1941 that Hitler's in the house next door, um, and could you go talk to him on my behalf? Do you have any idea what he's been doing to our people? Do you have any idea what he wants to do? You see, really, Ananias is, is trying to persuade Jesus to change his plan. And he's trying to do so because he has this fear that Paul is going to capture him and drag him off to Jerusalem where he might be put to death. But this is Jesus, and there's no negotiating with Jesus. There's no need to even. See, what's unspoken is this, this sense of communication with Ananias. I, I am your Savior. I am sovereign. Trust me. Despite what this looks like, trust me. And, and so then he tells Ananias, Go. He didn't address any of those issues with Paul. Yeah, I know why he's here. I know what he's done, but go. And he also shares with them just a little bit about what's going to happen in Paul's future, that he's going to be an instrument in, in the hands of the Lord to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles, but also to kings, also to, to other Jews. And there's even that, that promise that Paul is going to suffer in the name of Jesus. You know, take note here, it's, it's not a promise that he's going to suffer as some sort of punishment for what he's done. It's just a, a suffering that comes with, with associating with the name of Christ, being a follower of Jesus. See, I imagine Ananias was, was still very afraid. Um, but he leaves his home, and obeying Christ, he, he goes to Paul or to Saul. And if you look at your, your Bibles, we'll see what happens next there. Verses 17 through 19. <clears throat> so Ananias departed, and he entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul... The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the, on the road by which you came, has sent me to you that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. And then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. Isn't that beautiful? I'll be honest, I, I missed that the first time I read it. It's only when you slow down sometimes you, you see things. You've got to go at a slower pace to really see where you're going past. But did you catch that? Did you see the first thing that Ananias says to Saul? The first thing he says to Saul, the, the man who three days earlier was on a mission to collect and maybe have Christians killed, the first words out of the mouth of Ananias to this Saul is, Brother Saul. I know he's, he's already dead, but imagine if Osama bin Laden had been converted and, and God sent you to him. Are you prepared for the first words out of your mouth to be Brother Osama? Um, let me try to put this in another perspective. Uh, it's like if a KKK member was converted and God sent an African-American Christian to him and his first words uh, to this recent enemy were to call that enemy his brother. I think we all struggle. We have our own prejudice, but we all have fears, many of them for good reasons. And, and yet let me ask you this. Are you prepared to welcome those who are not like you? Are you ready to show kindness and hospitality, to offer discipleship, 
to those whom God converts or grants repentance to, no matter what their past includes. You know, would, would you, with open arms, welcome Paul if he were to walk in those doors today? If we were to bring him into our covenant community? See, I, I hope and I, I pray that we would. And I hope and I pray that God gives us the chance to prove that we will. See, Ananias then lays his hands on, on Paul and his vision returns. And he's filled with the Holy Spirit. You know that we know he's really a believer. Uh, he's then baptized, marking his entrance into the covenant community. And this marks the beginning of his discipleship. And we're going to see that in the next section next week uh, as he begins that. But what a, a beautiful story of, of rebirth, a beautiful story of conversion here. See, being raised in the covenant community is a, a wonderful thing. You know, it saves a lot of trouble. It's a wonderful way to grow up, but so is conversion. Uh, you know, it's beautiful to see God work in both ways. And so what does all this mean? I'll give you three final thoughts. Uh, first, this one should be clearly obvious, but no one is too sinful or too terrible for God to grant repentance to. And say, I am tempted to give you examples of this, of, of famous people. Uh, you know, Stephen Hawkins or Charles Manson or someone crazy like that. But, but really, those people aren't in your life. Uh, really, I want you thinking about that friend of yours who is just completely indifferent to Christianity. You know, I want you thinking about that, that family member that you have who clearly thinks you're a lunatic for your faith in Christ. I want you thinking about that, that co-worker who is just pridefully homosexual or unapologetically living in some sort of sexual sin. I want you thinking about that, that neighbor who seemingly has it all together but has no interest in Christianity. I even want you thinking about that devout Muslim or Hindu or Mormon who is confident that you are wrong and they are right. That's, that's what Paul was here. And God, despite all that, God gave him faith and from that day forward, Paul becomes willing to die for the truth of the gospel. That's how much this changed in his life. So pray for these people in your life. And, and, and never give up hope that God might grant grace even to them, just as he has to you, just as he has to Paul here. Second thing is uh, Christian conversion is not just try harder. Uh, it's easy for us to try to turn it into that. Uh, what we see here is this glimpse of Christ, and he knows he's real, and he knows he's risen, and he knows that Christ is his Savior. You even, I mean, you notice here that Jesus just changes Paul's heart. He just gives him faith. It's a supernatural work that God does. But don't lose sight that, that Jesus didn't just tell Paul, you know, try harder. Instead, he, he gave him eyes to see in more ways than one. And here's the third thing. Conversion makes us new. Following Christ doesn't just get tacked onto our life. I, I do that with sports teams a lot. In fact, uh, you know, I just tacked them onto my life. I did this recently with the Philadelphia Flyers. Uh, I'm not an actual hockey fan, but I thought, you know what, I'll have a hockey fan. Philadelphia Flyers are my team. You can count me as a fan of theirs now. I even have a sweatshirt to prove it, right? Um, people want to do that with Christianity. You know, it sounds like that might be good for me. Yeah, I'm a Christian now. Let's tack that onto my list of things. But, but being a, a Christian is not something we add to our list of identifiers, fans of things and such. Uh, it's this new identifier. It's this absolute foundational identifier. It is what we are. It is who we are. It is why we exist. It is everything about us. It can't just be tacked on. 2 Corinthians 5.17 makes this point saying, 
Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Uh, in conversion, we have a new purpose, a new life, a new Lord. That is a, a new master, someone we listen to and follow. Uh, I'll give you one more, this bonus. Uh, the call to be used by God is often a painful calling. Uh, we're going to see Paul be used as an instrument in the hand of the Lord. Uh, but remember, you know, a, a hammer is an instrument. Uh, and when a hammer is used to build something, it feels the impact just as much as the nail that it's, it's driving in. Uh, Paul's going to find that out. You know, you walk with the Lord, you're used as an instrument in his hand, you're going to feel that too. Um, but let's not shy away from the desire to be used as, as instruments in the Redeemer's hand. You know, that's a wonderful place for us to be as his people. Uh, I hope this text encourages you. So we just see the conversion of someone who so hated Christ, suddenly loved Christ. It gives me hope even for, for people I've given up at times to keep speaking the gospel, to keep sharing the gospel with them. Uh, let's pray. God, thank you for the unlikely conversion of Paul. Uh, thank you for the way that it shows us that you can soften the hardest of hearts. You know, a man who later calls himself the chief of sinners. It shows us that uh, the truth of the gospel is superior to any vocational aspirations we might desire. Thank you for the fearful obedience of Ananias in this text. In this culture of, of absolute autonomy, would you teach us to submit to you for our own good and for the glory of your name? Lord, may your holy word settle into our hearts and go with us this week, wherever you lead us in this new year. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.